Well, hey, good morning and welcome to Northridge Church. Man, we're honored to have you here this Easter. Happy Easter to every single one of you, whether you're watching online or you're at one of our campuses. We are honored and we believe, we value that you chose to worship with us here at Northridge Church. And, and I'm gonna need a little interaction with you here this morning. I'm gonna need you to, to raise your hands for a couple things. How many of you, by a show of hands, that you've, you've heard of Disney World before? Throw your hands in the air. You've heard of it before. Okay, so the vast majority of us have heard of Disney World. If you haven't, you've probably living under a rock for the last couple of years. Anyway, okay, now here's a second question. How many of you have actually experienced and been to Disney World? Show me your hands. Okay, still a good chunk of us, yeah. I remember the first time I was going to, to Disney World. It's the only time I've been to Disney World. It was, I was around 19 years old. I was getting ready to get engaged to my now wife, Ashley, and her parents had invited me to go with them on their trip uh, to Disney World. It was kind of one of those big moments as the boyfriend, like the family's coming to get to know you, and it was like, okay, this is gonna be fun, but... I don't know about you, but I was 19 years old, and I always just thought Disney World was kind of for kids. You know, like, I've seen stuff in, in the magazines, and I've seen the pictures of the magic, but, you know, like, it just seemed like, am I really going to have a good time here? And then I experienced it. I experienced the wind blowing in my hair as I rode Rock and Roller Coaster, and I, I felt the drop of Tower of Terror, and I tasted the food, and I smelled the things, and then I got to meet Mickey Mouse. <laughs> and it's like magic. You get there, and you, you've heard all the stories, and, and you've seen the magazines, but then you get there, and you're just engulfed in the magic, and you feel like a kid again. And I learned something. It's, it's one thing to know the facts about something, to see it in magazines, but it's a whole nother level to experience it personally. You know, this morning is Easter. It's, it's, it's a day that we celebrate in the church. And, and if I were a betting man, I would bet the vast majority of us, whether you go to church on a regular basis or you just come Easter and Christmas, you probably know the story of Easter. And if you don't, spoiler alert, Jesus died and he rose again. But you probably knew that. You know the story, you know the details. In fact, for many of you, you could probably, if that was all it was, you could stand on this stage right here as I am and tell us the story. So I want to build off this platform this morning. I want to ask you a question. Maybe you've heard the story, but have you experienced its impact? Have you personally and intimately felt the weight and the impact, the significance that Easter can have on your life? You see, this morning we're going to look at a story of resurrection, but it's not the one you think. It's not the one you, you expected on this Easter Sunday. It's the one that happened before Jesus rose again. And I believe this story actually shows us the significance that the Easter story can have on our lives. So if you got your Bibles, John chapter 11. John chapter 11 is where we're gonna be. If you don't have a Bible, you can use the one that's provided for us. It's gonna be on page 871. And you can just follow along on the screen as well. All of it's gonna be on there. And I'd encourage you, if you take notes, grab your program. You can fill in the blanks. If you're more tech savvy, we have an you can take notes in that. You just got to log in. And so we see the, the, the setting of this story unfold in, in verses one through three. It says this, now a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her, the village and Mary and her sister Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So the sister sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. 
And so the backdrop of this story is there's a, there's a couple people in this story. There's Jesus, and then there's this family unit, Lazarus and his sisters, Mary and Martha. And we, we, we pick up this story where this guy named Lazarus is sick. And we're not talking about like the flu or a cold, like he's on the verge of death. He's gonna die unless somebody intervenes on his behalf. And so Mary and Martha, they send word to Jesus. Jesus, we need your help. And verse five kind of gives us a little bit of, of clues into the relationship Jesus had with them. Verse five, it says, now Jesus loved Martha and her sisters and Lazarus. So, so we know that they're not sending like this random 911 call to Jesus. Jesus loved them. They had a relationship. Jesus knew them. And so you would expect, you would think that Jesus having loved them, when he hears the news that Lazarus is sick, he would go to his need. I mean, isn't that what you and I would do? Mom and dad are sick. We kind of drop everything at work and we go take care of mom and dad or a child who needs our help. That's what we do in our culture. When someone is sick on the verge of death, we go to them. But look what Jesus does. Verse six, it says this. So when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. And then he said to his disciples, let us go back to Judea. And right here's where the tension comes in in the story. Because you got to ask the question, how in the world could Jesus wait two more days? How could Jesus claim to love this guy and yet bail on him when he needed him most? Like, what is Jesus thinking? What is his problem? And I bet probably in, in, in a crowd this large, someone can relate to that. Because there's been a, a pocket in your life, a circumstance in your, your life where you needed Jesus. And you prayed to Jesus, you, 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 you longed for Jesus to intervene, and you, you sought after him, you called after him, and I feel like he bailed on you. He left you hanging. He ignored you. I mean, that's probably how Mary and Martha feel, like, Jesus, we need your help, and you're just going to sit there two days longer when he's about to die? What is your problem, Jesus? And, and there's this battle going on between God's provision and the timing of his provision. And we get a glimpse into what love really is. Because remember, it said Jesus loved them. And I think we have a skewed view of what love is. Because the reality is, is love is really, love is not getting what you want when you want it. But love is getting what you need when you need it. And that's a hard reality to face when you feel like you need something from God and he doesn't. And it's hard to reconcile those two things. And when I think about this point, love is getting what, it's not getting what you, need, what you want when you want it, but it's getting what you need when you need it. I, I think of my life and I think of kind of the throes of parenting. I have, you know, f three kids, four and under. So please pray for me. <laughs> and, you know, can you imagine parents? Can you imagine grandparents? Well, grandparents, you're kind of excluded from this because you kind of give the kids what they want when they want it. But parents, can you imagine what your life would look like if you gave your kids what they wanted when they wanted? Whew. I have this daughter. Her name is Joelle. She's four years old. And almost every night when we sit down at the table for, for dinner, it's our family. And my, my little four-year-old, she often asks this question. Hey, hey, daddy. Hey, mommy. What's my treat? I mean, what's your treat? Eat your dinner. Let me tell you, she's four years old, but she's a lot smarter than you think. 
And what she's doing is she's playing this, this game. She's trying to figure out because she's kind of saw what was for dinner that night. And she probably thought, eh, I'm not sure I want this. And she's recognizing like, hey, if the treat is good enough, I'll plow through this to get to that. And the, tr- and the reality is, is if I gave my kids what they wanted, when they wanted it, we'd eat ice cream for dinner every night. Sounds pretty awesome, doesn't it? But that's not what love is. Love is actually sometimes withholding something that someone thinks they need, but really they just want it. And that's what's happening in this story. And it's hard for us to face that truth when it comes to God, when we can't actually fix our problem and we're like, God, help me, I need you. And it feels like God doesn't care. In fact, this story gets worse. Not only did they need God, but now Lazarus dies. John John 11, verse 14, it says this, so then they told Jesus plainly, Lazarus is dead. So there's no more healing. There's no more help. And now Jesus enters the scene, verse 15. It says, but let us go to him. On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. So now you're going to show up, Jesus. We needed you like six days ago, Jesus, and now you come and he's been in the tomb. The stone is already rolled over it. It's way too late, Jesus. Maybe that's how you feel right now. You needed Jesus. He didn't come through. And now your situation, your circumstances are way too far gone that it's not fixable. It's dead. That's probably how Mary and Martha felt. Jesus comes on the scene and it's like, what are you going to do now, Jesus? I mean, like, he's dead. He's been in there for four days, and that's how we often feel about our problems. It's too far gone, Jesus. Like, this can't be fixed. My mess is too big. In fact, that's exactly how two individuals felt. Check this out. The stones in my life were pride and unforgiveness. My stones were anger and depression. My dad was an assistant pastor, So I grew up knowing who Jesus was, but I never really had a relationship with him. As I grew up, uh, slowly I began to realize that uh, I could do my own thing and thought, it's my life, no one can tell me what to do. I was into partying and drinking and smoking and doing my own thing still. My pride started getting bigger and bigger and uh, the unforgiveness with pride, uh, you don't really wanna forgive anybody that has done anything to you because then you have to admit that you were hurt and that uh, they hurt you. And then you may have to admit that you were wrong as well. I was really good at hiding my true self. I was good at hiding my drug use and my alcohol abuse. Um, I was in an abusive and awful relationship that no one knew about. On the outside, I had two degrees and a good job and an apartment and good friends. And so I thought I was fine and I didn't need God to help me with any of the other things. I started going deeper and deeper into depression and uh, I would party at night and I pretty much felt unstoppable. Even after I got back from Iraq, I felt like I was on top of the world. Eventually, I moved back to New York where I met my wife. My pride with how big it had become in the military, I really didn't think about anybody else around me and all I cared about was myself. So that led me to uh, cheat on my wife eventually. In my third year of teaching, my depression and anxiety and anger were the worst they'd ever been. Um, And I just stopped faking Christianity. I did away with pretending 
who I was and just focused on who I wanted to be in the world. I knew I wasn't okay, but I didn't believe that God could fix that for me. In the same year, I got a call from my principal over Thanksgiving break. Um, she called to let me know that one of my former students and her mother had been killed in a brutal murder. My initial reaction was just pure anger against God. I thought, how could God, who was supposed to be good, allow this to happen? So our marriage was rocky. Eventually that led to a big blowout and she gave me the ultimatum, either her and the boys leave or me leave. So after I left, I was living out of my car, uh, working at Salvatore's, still going to school. And then at night, I would start drinking. At that moment in my life, I was probably at the lowest that I've ever been. I felt like a complete and utter failure. My marriage was on the brink of destruction. I felt like everything that I had done up until that moment was pointless because everything in my life was just starting to fall apart. I didn't understand how the God that I was told about when I was growing up in the church, who was supposed to be good and loving and merciful, could take away such a wonderful woman and her mother. There were plenty of awful people in the world and God could have taken any of those people. I just decided that the way I was gonna feel better and not feel angry all the time was to drink more and use drugs more and um, be in relationships and just kind of numb my heart. I thought that it was working for a while because I wasn't angry. Um, but when it would wear off, I was even more depressed and in more pain. So here Mary and Martha are, probably feeling like these two individuals. Lazarus is dead. What are you going to do, Jesus? In fact, they communicate that to him. Verse 20, it says this, when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him. But Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if he had been here... My brother would have not died. So Martha goes out and she sees Jesus and she just simply says, where were you, Jesus? We needed you like four days ago. And if you would have just shown up, Jesus, he'd still be alive. And she kind of casts blame on Jesus. Like, this is your fault. And honestly, it's because she just doesn't understand God's full grasp, his full encompassing, relentless love for her. And I think sometimes we fall into the same trap. Is, is when we don't fully understand how much God loves us, our lack of understanding of God's love, what it does is it creates this gap. This gap, and, and oftentimes what, what Martha does is she fills this gap with blame. But when we don't understand, when we encounter circumstances just like this, when God doesn't intervene for us, it creates this gap because we don't understand God's love, and guess what? We have to choose how we fill that gap. We have to choose. Our lack of understanding of God's love creates a gap, and we choose how to fill it. And many times when we, we, we don't understand, we fill that gap with blame. We fill that gap with doubt. We fill it with uncertainty. We fill it with fear or anger because we don't understand what God is doing, and that's exactly what Martha does. She blames God. If you just would have been here, he'd still be alive. Mary does the exact same thing. Verse 28, it says this, after she had said this, she went back and called her sister Mary aside. The teacher is here, that's Jesus, she said, is asking for you. When Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. 
When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Sound familiar, doesn't it? I mean, they are sisters. And here they just say the exact same thing. Where were you, God? Where were you when we needed you? Because if you were here, our brother wouldn't be dead. But what's interesting is in this statement, we see a lot of negativity, we see a lot of blame, but I think there's something there that we often miss, and I think it's faith. Behind this, this statement is just this little tiny kernel of faith because Mary and Martha believed that Jesus had the capacity to heal their brother. They had the faith. They said, hey, if you would have been here, we knew, we know he would be alive. And behind that is this small kernel of faith. And what faith means is that hope is never entirely lost. When we have faith, when there's still hope and we're clinging, no matter how bad your life is, if you cling on to faith and you cling on to hope, it means that there's still a chance. And let me tell you something. Our God specializes in using the smallest bits of faith to have significant impacts. And we see this in this story. Verse 33, it says this. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him, he asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him. There's that word again. He loved him. It's hard to measure God's love, especially when you don't feel it. And here we get to see a side of Jesus that we don't often get to see. We see broken Jesus. Oftentimes when we think of Jesus, we think of powerful Jesus, miraculous Jesus, suffering Jesus. But here you get to see Jesus weeping, crying over someone who he loved. And it says that he was moved in spirit and troubled. Why was God troubled? Because no one hates death more than God. No one hates death more than God. Why? Because death wasn't part of the original plan. Death comes through our sin. Our choice to rebel against God brought death. And therefore, because it stems from sin, God hates it. And he hated it enough to provide his one and only son to go die in our place to experience death. So in the future, in eternity, we wouldn't have to. This is one of those moments that moved Jesus to the cross. And so verse 38, he does something. It says, Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across it. And he said, take away the stone. Now notice the stone represents the old. It represents the past. You see, if you want something new in your life, you gotta roll back the stone. If you want God to do something fresh and new in your life, the first thing you have to do is to remove the old, to remove the past, to roll back the stone. And Jesus says, remove, take away the stone. But look what happens next. I think this is so crazy. I'm so amazed that the Bible included it. It says this, but Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there's a bad odor, for he has been in there for four days. And I love this moment in the story. Because you wonder, like, why in the world did the Bible include this? And here's why I think it did. Because oftentimes we do the same thing. When God's getting ready to do something in our lives, we get nervous. We get scared. Martha does it. She says, hold on a second, Jesus. Wait, I I don't think you understand how bad it stinks. And I believe when God wants to transform us and when he wants to do something special in our lives, we get nervous because we're not sure God knows how bad it's really gotten. We're afraid that God will step into the mess and the stink of our lives. And so we put our hands up and we say, hold on a second, God. 
Are you sure you want to see this? Are you sure you want to know how far I've gone? Are you sure you want to know what mess I've created? Are you sure you know how bad my life really stinks? It's exactly what Martha says. Jesus has rolled a stone back. He's getting ready to do a miracle. And Martha's like, hold on a second. It stinks in there. And I think some of us are afraid of God doing something special in our life because other people might smell the stench of our lives. And we throw up our hands and we say, wait. But God works through that. And here's the reality is no one hates the mess of transformation more than us. No one hates the humility that comes with people seeing how broken we truly are. But the good news is today, no matter how broken you are, we are all broken. We all stink a little bit. Amen? So Jesus does something miraculous. It says this, Jesus called out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and cloth around his face. Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. And right here, I think we see it. I think we see the significance that Easter, not the story, but the lifestyle God provides us can have on us. Because here was a dead man, and Jesus says, wake up, rise up, and Lazarus does. And I don't know about you, but I've always pictured this story. When, when Lazarus comes out of the tomb, I always just pictured him with this like, beautiful halo around his head, and he's like glowing in perfection. But that's not what happens. In fact, when he walks out of the tomb, he still looks like a dead man. He's wrapped in, in dead man things, and I think it shows us a beautiful picture of what God can do in our lives. The first thing is he can raise us to life. What that means is we are dead in our sins. We're all sinners, and we're dead in our sin. And that moment where we, Jesus calls your name, he brings you back to life. He, he conquers your sin, and he gives you life, and you wake up for the very first time. We call it salvation in the church. It's that moment where you trust in Jesus with your, with, with your life. He forgives you of your past and he gives you new life. That's the moment where we wake up and we come alive. But don't miss this. Jesus said to Lazarus, hey, you gotta take the dead things and peel them off. Lazarus came out looking like a dead man. And here's the reality for us. We think all the time, like when, when, when I get to know Jesus and when I place my faith and trust in Jesus, everything's good. Got no problems anymore. It's like, wow, Jesus took care of it all. But yet, how many of us really experience that? Probably none of us, because the truth is, is God brings us from death to life, and then the rest of our journey of following Jesus is him peeling back the dead things in our life and resurrecting things in our life that are dead. And that's the story of, of sanctification. That's what we call it in the church. It's the process. It's the lifestyle of God restoring the broken things in our life until we meet him. What's interesting in this story is we missed maybe the one, one of the most important pieces. I kind of pulled it out. You see, when Jesus was talking with Martha, he said something really significant. Remember when Martha said to Jesus, hey, if you would have just been here, my brother would have been alive. This is what Jesus said to her in verse 23. He says this, Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. She's not getting what Jesus is saying. But don't miss this. This is the most important thing I'm going to read today, it says this, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die, and the, whoever lives by believing in me will never die. 
Do you believe this? And I think that's a personal question for every single one of us. Martha answers it for us. She says, Lord, yes, she replied. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God who has come into the world. And here Jesus makes this bold statement before he ever went to the cross, before he ever rose again. He says, I am resurrection. And we have to understand that Jesus just didn't die on a cross and he didn't just rise again, but Jesus is the very definition of resurrection. Jesus is resurrection. What that means, if there's dead things in your life that you want to come alive, it has to go through Jesus because he is resurrection. You see, here's what I'm afraid of this morning. Many of you, you, you came here to an Easter service at Northridge Church and you came to celebrate an event in history. You came to celebrate the fact that our God is no longer dead, but that he's alive. But here's the problem. is for many of you, if you're just celebrating an event in history, you are missing it. You're missing the significance and the impact that it can have on your life because the resurrection isn't just an event. It's a lifestyle that Jesus offers you and that he offers me. It's this lifestyle where God raises you from dead to life. While you're dead in your sins, he brings you back to life. And all throughout your life, he lets you live this lifestyle where he continues to resurrect things in your life. And he did that for these people. Check this out. I decided to walk to the gas station to get something to drink. And as I was crossing the street, something told me to look to my right. When I looked to my right, I saw two headlights coming at me, and that's when it happened. I got hit by a car. So after I got hit by the car, I was about to get up. A guy ran over, told me to stay down. I had just gotten hit by a car. Everybody rushed over to see how it was. The ambulance was called. In the ambulance, I was talking to the paramedic, and he looked at me, and he was like, you're in a lot better uh, condition than the last guy. Had to ask him, well, what happened to the last guy? And he looked at me, and he said, the last guy died. That statement really didn't resonate with me until later on when I was in the hospital. I was sitting there by myself, alone, uh, had just gotten surgery done on my leg. I, I started thinking, what if that was me? What if I would have been the one who had died? Where would have I gone? At work one day, I overheard a conversation between two of my coworkers talking about the community groups at Northridge. I grew up at Northridge and I left, and so I was annoyed to hear this. Over the next few weeks though, I kept hearing about church and I kept hearing about fellowship and believers and God and a rental car I was using was preset to Christian radio. Um, and so all of these things were just coming at me through this time of deep depression and deep anger. Um, and it's amazing looking back how God was pursuing me the whole time. I was still really angry, but I was more exhausted um, from the pain and the hurt. I just didn't want to do this anymore, and I realized I couldn't handle it on my own. I realized up until that point, the life that I was living was full of pride and unforgiveness, and all that it was doing was just dragging me down uh, further and further. And that's when Jesus really found me and woke me up from uh, the sleep that I had been in for years in my life. And I realized that was the gospel, that uh, through what he did on the cross, I was able to find life. I was still angry, but I was just so exhausted from the pain. And so I finally let go of my pride 
and decided that I couldn't do this on my own anymore. And slowly but surely, my anger and my pain and my depression started to become less and less. I started realizing that God had put me in place at my school so that I could be a light in the darkness, um, so that I could understand the pain my students are going through, but also encourage them that there is joy in the world and that it comes from God. Not only was I able to forgive those that had done me wrong, but now I was in the position where I could suck up my pride and humble myself and go and seek the forgiveness of those that I had done wrong. If it wasn't for Christ dying on the cross and rising again, my stones of pride and unforgiveness would have never rolled away. I'd be lying if I said that I didn't still struggle with depression and anger and pain, um, but I'm able to see it in a different light now. I'm able to understand that God gives me trials so that He can produce steadfastness in me and so that I can be more perfect and a more reflection of His Son, that I can use those emotions and those struggles that I go through to witness to other people who might be going through it too, um, and that I can share the good news that God is good. God has rolled my stones of anger and depression away.
Before coming to Christ, I spent my life ashamed and hiding behind stones of failure. Pride, reliance upon myself, and years of decisions without seeking God's word weighed so heavily upon me. I reached a point where I did not think that I could forgive myself for the life I had chosen. Failure blocked my path, blocked the light, and blocked God's love. Before coming to Northridge, my heart said, go to church. But my fear said, you're a sinner, you'll only be judged. When I finally came in 2017, I was both scared to be found in this cave of sin and scared that I might never come out of the darkness. I had been taught that Easter was the celebration of Jesus' sacrifice, and I knew that Christ suffered death on the cross to save sinners, but I thought my sin was too great. I never thought Christ's death was planned for me. I'm learning to trust God's perfect plan for me. I'm learning that Jesus lived a life of example, teaching wisdom and showing love. I will make mistakes all my life. I can choose to hide in my fear and focus on the darkness of failure or accept the gift of God's grace and walk in the light. Today, my heart rejoices knowing that Jesus rolled the stone of my failure and shame away when he walked out of the grave. He was just waiting for me to accept that. Today, when we celebrate Jesus' sacrifice, I can say that it is for me and others like me. Today, I'm being baptized to say that Jesus is the leader of my life and the forgiver of my sins. Kate, it is my privilege today to baptize you in the name of the Father, of the Son, and the Holy Spirit. You know, I, as I started this morning, I asked you a question. You might know the Easter story, but have you felt the impact on your life personally? You see, a baptism story is just a story of God rolling another stone away. And I'm telling you today, Jesus is still in the business of rolling stones away. So it doesn't matter who you are this morning. It doesn't matter if you've been coming to church all your life, you believe in Jesus and you've been following him, or it doesn't matter if you're new to church and you still got questions, you don't know about Jesus, you're still trying to figure it out. I'm telling you today on Easter where we celebrate the resurrection, you can experience the resurrection. You can walk in it and you can feel its power and its might in your life and it can change you significantly. And I want to walk you through two ways. You see, maybe you're here this morning and you know what, you're, you're just trying to figure out this whole Christianity thing out, this whole Jesus movement. And you've got questions and you've got doubt, but there's one thing that God has been doing is he's been pursuing you. He's been chasing after you. You hear story after story that we share. You'll notice one thread that God pursues us, that he loves us enough to chase us down even when we run from him. 
And maybe today you've been running for God, from God, but you can feel his pursuit over your life. And he's trying to get your attention. He's trying to let you know that he wants to roll a stone in your life away. And it's the first stone called your heart. Where God takes a hard heart and he begins to make it soft and beat again for the things of God. And maybe that's you this morning. Maybe God's been speaking to you and and maybe you, you stop chasing what the world has to offer and you start believing in what God can do in your life. Where you recognize that, man, you are a sinner, but God's grace is way bigger than that. His grace can cover your sin and you just say, God, forgive me and lead my life. I wanna believe in you. I believe that your death and your resurrection can change who I am today. Maybe you just need a fresh start. This is what the Bible says in that moment. Second Corinthians chapter five, it says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, they believe in Christ, the new creation has come. The old, the stone has been rolled away. It's gone and the new is here. Maybe you need that this morning, a fresh start where God gives it to you. But I would bet probably for many of you, you've made that decision. You've put your faith and trust in Jesus and you've just been walking with him, loving him. But the truth is, is God doesn't just stop rolling stones in your life either. You see, the truth is, is it's a process. It's a lifestyle of God rolling stones away in our lives. And for us as Christians, as followers of Christ, we just move on to the next stone, which is our story. It's my story. It's your story. I would ask you, as a a fellow follower of Christ, what's the thing in your life that's dead that God needs to bring back to life? What's the thing you're holding on to? Maybe it's anger or bitterness or unforgiveness. What's the thing in your life that doesn't belong, that you need God to intervene and roll that stone back away? What is it? This is what the Bible says about this resurrection life. It says in Philippians, it says, being confident in this, that he who is beginning a good work in you will carry it to completion until the day you meet Jesus. See, that's the process God walks us in. We meet Jesus and throughout our life, he works in us and he's carrying out this work until we meet him. Galatians 2.20 says, I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but it's Christ that lives in me. The life I now live in in the body, I live by faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave up himself for me. Romans 8, it says this, it says, this resurrection life you receive from God. I wonder how many Christians today are living a resurrection life where God is pulling off the old and he's giving us new day by day and, 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 and week by week. Romans 8, it says, and if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you and me, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because it's the spirit who lives in you. So this morning, I wonder what God is saying to you personally. And I just want to give you an opportunity to respond to that. So if you just bow your heads and close your eyes, you know, maybe that's you this morning where God needs to roll that first stone away called your heart. You've been running from him and you've realized today that you can't get away from him. His love is radical, it's ridiculous, and it is unconditional. It's not based on what you do or how you act. He just loves you. And maybe today you step into that love and you just say, it's not magic words, but you just say, God, thanks for loving me. And I recognize I'm a sinner and I pray that you would forgive me of that sin, God. And today on Easter, 
I want to put my faith and trust in you, God. I want you to give me a new story, a fresh start right here and right now. And so I place my faith and trust in you. Be the forgiver of my sins and the leader of my life. Man, if you said those words in your heart and you believe them, God will honor that. And I just encourage you, tell somebody about that decision. It could be your campus pastor. It could be the person who invited you. It could be the person sitting next to you. Just tell somebody. But maybe it's you today who just needs that next stone rolled. You love Jesus. You've been following Jesus. But maybe today there's some dead things in your life that you've been holding on to. Maybe it's fear, anger, depression, bitterness, unforgiveness. What is it? And would you ask God right now to roll that stone away? That he would bring people in your life to hold you accountable? to let go of the fear, to let go, to forgive, to let go of the bitterness, to trust him in every situation, in every circumstance, would you ask God to roll that stone away? God, we believe this, that you today and tomorrow and for the rest of our earthly journey, you're still rolling stones. Easter is just the pinnacle, but we celebrate the fact that you take the dead things in our lives and you bring them back to life. We praise you, God, for that. You conquered death and you defeated the grave. And therefore, because we believe in you, everything that's dead will one day come alive again in Jesus' name. And so we celebrate that. We rejoice in that this Easter today because you are a God who is worthy. And so, God, we pray that today, as people make decisions to follow you, to roll those stones, that you give us the confidence, the ability to be bold and make that step today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, the truth is, is Jesus is alive, amen? Yeah. He's alive, that's right. And today we can stand and we can celebrate and we can sing because Jesus is alive. So that's what we're going to do is we're going to sing a song, How God Resurrects Us. So let's all stand at all of our campuses and let's celebrate the resurrection of Jesus.